be honest, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is DIY, is making stuff, is taking bits of wood, cutting, chopping, shaving, and nailing them together. The thing about hitting a nail in is that striking it once, generally speaking, isn't enough give it a good whack then perhaps but realistically what you need to do is keep on hammering that nail until the nail goes in and that's a little bit like when we come to scripture again and again expecting hoping that it will affect us and change us sometimes we can come and we can sort of feel that sense of ah, I've done this before this is just more of the same What's the point in reading stories which seem so similar to stories that have gone before? Because when we come to scripture, we're supposed to be changed. There are lessons for us to learn. There are effects that it's supposed to have on us. It's like a nail being hit by a hammer. And if you're anything like me, probably the truth is that you need that hammer to strike several times until that nail goes deep into the wood until the lesson from God's word has its effect, takes its hold on you. We're in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. Remember, we've been learning about the early church, Jesus's followers in the immediate months and years that followed his life, his death, his resurrection. And already we've seen stories overlapping, ideas and themes crisscrossing. And today, Hands Up is another one of those, chapter 11, the second half of it, where a lot of the stuff that we cover we've seen before. And we might say, well, what's the point in this? Luke, why do you want to tell us more of this? What can we learn? We've already come, we've already listened, we've already understood. Well, have we actually changed? Have we been transformed? Are our lives any different? If you can put your hand up and say, yes, honestly, I've taken these lessons on board. I now look and live more like Christ, more like these early Christians, these followers of Jesus, then by all means, tune out for the next couple of minutes. But I think for the majority of us, we need that hammer to come, to strike repeatedly, to shift us that little bit closer and that little bit further into action and into life as it's supposed to be following Jesus. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 19 and we're actually going to read all the way through until chapter 12 verse 5. There's a couple of different things going on but I hope that you'll see that there is an awful lot of the same stuff going on and that's one of the things that we're going to learn together. So Acts chapter 11 beginning at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the words to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. 
<clears throat> then he, Barnabas, went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine through the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James. John's brother with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads, four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Did you notice how in those connected stories. There was so much of what we've already explored and experienced in the book of Acts. We see simple Christians simply sharing Jesus with whomever it is that they encounter as they go. We see the Spirit of God blessing their witness and the church growing. We see God's people feeling the effects of living in a broken world like any other person. We see God's people again dedicated to Christ and therefore loving one another in generosity. And we see again that those who reject Jesus can act out that rejection by rejecting his people as well and persecuting them. See, there's nothing new under the sun, really. This has already happened in the book of Acts. And I'm sure we could all recount stories of similar things in our own lives, in our own days, in our own recent history. But that sort of cycle of repeating is just an opportunity for us to come again and to learn from, to be shaped by and changed by it. Why would we expect different things all of a sudden to start happening then? Why would we expect different things to start happening now even? So this morning we're going to look at each of those sort of repeated things and just remind ourselves um, that we need the nail banging in, not just to be struck once, but to be kept on being struck until the lesson settles and that we're changed by it. So the first thing that we see in that is that the, the disciples, scattered because of the persecution, the, the stoning of Stephen where they spread out to Samaria and even further abroad apparently, they simply shared their faith wherever they went. And a little section of them went a step further. Their habit had been up until that point only to speak to other Jews about the Messiah, about the Christ who they'd all been waiting for to come, who Jesus was. But these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, now in Antioch, decide this isn't something that they want to keep to themselves. Perhaps they heard the story of Peter and Cornelius. Perhaps they just hadn't particularly realised that it was something that other people had assumed should be kept to themselves. But no, they come to Antioch and they begin speaking to the Greeks also, the non-Jews, proclaiming to them the good news of the Lord Jesus too. Sometimes 
It doesn't need to be complicated, does it? It doesn't need to be even named people, special people. Philip off in Samaria, Peter going to Cornelius' house. Here we have the birth of a new section of the church, a new real centre for the church, previously centred in Jerusalem, now centred in Antioch. And the founders, the evangelists, the missionaries who reached them, we've got no idea who they are. They're simple Christians simply sharing Jesus wherever they go. And I think that's one of the things that you and I, we encounter when we've been struck by in the scriptures, but we need to keep on finding and being told is that Jesus is too good to be kept to ourselves. We began this morning thinking about Psalm 96, didn't we? And in Psalm 96, the invitation or the instruction is this, to those who know the goodness and the greatness of the God, make a lot of noise and invite others to start making noise too. Worship God in song and invite others to join in that song too. Because Jesus is too good to keep to yourself. Do you ever just get excited to have found out about something? some good news in particular, and it's, it's all you can do to, to keep it locked up inside. I don't know, maybe your favourite sports team has just signed a new player, and you want, you want to cheer about it loud, and you want everyone to know. Maybe you've gotten engaged, uh, you asked someone to marry you, and they said yes. You want everybody to know, you have this big announcement, we are getting married. Maybe there's the expectation of, of new birth in a family. Again, want to make that known. How much more so should we who know Jesus want Jesus to be known, to be spreading his fame, spreading his glory, spreading the joy-bringing, hope-giving, peace-filling news of Jesus. He is too good to keep to ourselves. It's like the goodness of God spread out before us, a vast banquet. It's too much for one person to tackle and to attempt on their own. Actually, we can enjoy Jesus more when we are sharing him with others. And so the, the first thing that we see and we need to be reminded of and we need to be challenged to do, to live out as believers, is, is that those who know Jesus should want to share him, speak about him wherever they go with whoever they encounter. And that makes me think that, you know, we've got Christmas coming up. We've got events starting, um, cafe church, nativity services, a special service with Di and Kath coming back. We've got our Darganvod and our Christmas Eve things and our Christmas day. There's so much going on. Because now is a time, now is a chance, now is an opportunity specifically to speak about Jesus and for them to respond perhaps in a favourable way. But this isn't just about having an event and a flyer and saying, come sit near me while somebody else explains why Jesus is such good news. This is folks who are captivated, who are in love with Jesus, who are so grateful for, for his grace and his kindness in their lives, they want other people to share that too. That's not to say that each and every one of us needs to become evangelists in the sense of being able to stand up and to declare. But didn't Peter say, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you? 
Each of us needs to, to be uh, able to rehearse God's goodness, God's kindness to us in that special way in Calvary, but through the rest of our lives. Because Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. So we hammer that nail in until we learn it, until we respond to it, that we are a people who speak about him and share him no matter where we go. But more than that, what we see here in the story is that that sharing of Jesus happens in a context in which God has already been at work. We see the Spirit of God blessing their witness and the church growing. This is what it says, the Lord's hand was with them. That's a way of describing God's spirit at work. The Lord's hand was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And a little later it sums it up, verse 24, large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And we know from history that Antioch became one of the biggest churches in the first century. We've seen it before, we've been encouraged by it before, but is this a lesson that we've actually learnt? Is this something that has changed us and shaped us and affects us? Have we been banged into it that when God is at work, there is growth? You know, one of the most joyful things we can do in church as a pastor is to baptise people, is to celebrate the fact that there is new life, new birth in uh, the community and in the family of faith around us. This year in particular, we've, we've conducted two baptisms already. We had Nigel right at the start of the year. Then we took Annie down to Caswell Bay. We had a baptism at the beach. We've got Rob in our congregation at the moment who came to faith, baptised elsewhere, but came to faith this year. God is at work. And sometimes we as Christians, we can kind of get this mindset that, that the world is overcoming us. There's this new story, there's this shift in culture and society and it's all overpowering us and the best thing that we can do is huddle together and to try and stay safe and to ride out the storm. But that's not even the case here in Amford. That's certainly not the case globally. That's certainly not the case historically. The church is growing, lives are being affected, lives are being transformed as people come to know Jesus and as the hammer of God's word strikes and they are changed to become more like him, to live more in, in the, the pattern and the shape that he has laid before us. That is happening here, even in Amford. Be encouraged. That's certainly happening around the world. Those social commentators would look at places like Europe and America and bemoan the decrease and the decline of the church. That is simply not the entire picture. And it's not what we should be expecting to happen anyway, because Jesus, didn't he? He promised that he would build his church. He's at work in our world always. We began the year in the the great commission that Jesus gave to go out, to be sharing, to be speaking, to, to help lead people into truth. And he said, didn't he? I will be with you until the end of the age. It's not an idle promise. He's a promise keeper. God has sent his spirit to work in us and around us and through us. And we need to carry that confidence, that expectation with us as we live, as we speak for Jesus, that lives will be changed. And when we see that, we won't be puffed up and filled up. 
oh, we've found this wonderful evangelist who's changing lives. No, that we have a God who is opening blind eyes. I love that, that there's that repetition throughout the book of Acts, throughout church history, throughout local history, that the church is overcoming, that Christ will build his church. He's not fallen asleep. He's not gone on sabbatical. He hasn't broken his promise. He is at work through his people by his spirit. But more than that, more than sort of coming and seeing and being reminded and challenged that we're supposed to speak about Jesus wherever we go, that he's too good to keep for ourselves, that that speaking about Jesus is, is purposeful, it, it, it will bear fruit um, because Jesus has promised that he'll work in it. More than that, we also need to, to see and to remember and, and, and encounter this one, that those of us who belong to Jesus those of us who are part of his kingdom still live here in a broken world and that no promise has been made that we would be immune from the brokenness in the world. That the things that happen, the hurts, the hardship, the suffering, the sickness, they still come. In this story, when Barnabas and Saul have been brought into Antioch, that they've built the church up, that they're encouraging them, that they're drawing them more and more into the likeness and into a relationship with Christ, there's still this prediction that comes from Agabus, the prophet from Jerusalem down to Antioch, that there would be a famine and that God's people wouldn't be immune to that famine. You know, sometimes we can look at the circumstances that we find ourselves in and we can sort of assess God's kindness God's care, God's love for us by, by just, just how we're feeling in any particular moment. If we're sick, if we're struggling financially perhaps, if we've got stretched and strained relationships, well maybe that's proof that God doesn't love me as much as I thought. Because we reason, if he loved me, then everything would go swimmingly in my life. But look, the, the world is a broken place. Um, Life in this world is a struggle uh, 90% of the time. We are still broken people, uh, imperfect people, rubbing up against other people with sharp edges and cracks and fractures. And the result is con the continuation of suffering, of hurt, of pain. And nowhere in the scriptures does it say that we're immune from that? Well, I tell you what we do encounter in the scripture. It's God saying that he wants to do something about it. Do you know when we're really going through it, or even when we're comfortable and we hear stories of others going through it, the temptation for us is to say, why doesn't God do something about it? Why should it be that there's a famine? Shouldn't the people pray, Lord God, keep us safe from this famine? We don't want to go through it. We, amongst all people, we want to be the people who are relieved of this. God, why won't you do something about it? And yet we have this, we have God's word, don't we? That he is doing something about it. If only we'd have eyes to see what he is up to in our lives and in our world. I put it to you that Jesus more truly than any of us, sees the brokenness and cares about it. He desires for 
for his good world to be healed again, for the sickness that is in creation and in each of us to be made well. How do we know that Jesus wants that? How do we know that God is working in that direction? Well, he came. God gave up his own life to start the work of restoring and healing. That is not to say that it is finished in its entirety. There are promises for when that will happen, when Christ returns and, and everything sad will come untrue, as C.S. Lewis put it, where tears will be wiped away, where thirst finally quenched, hunger done away with, sickness and suffering and even death gone. We can trust that even in the midst of the hardships we might face, that we are not immune to, that God is at work, that God cares more about fixing it even than we do, that he has done and he will do what is necessary. We need to learn that. We need to be changed by that. So we've got this quick little lesson to speak about Jesus no matter where we go, to go in the confidence that it will bear fruit, that the Spirit is at work, the Lord's hand is on those who speak Jesus' name, but that those who come and have faith in Jesus are not promised immunity from the hardships of this world. And what's the next thing that we see? We see verse 29, that these disciples here in Antioch, truly having been brought into a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus, want to live exactly as the church in Jerusalem. Do you remember that glorious description, Barnabas, held up as an example of it, that the, the disciples freely sold and gave what they had so that there was nobody in need amongst them. Well, these folks here in Antioch hear the prospect of famine and hardship and struggle, and somehow they perceive that particularly in Jerusalem and Judea, that their brothers and sisters will be suffering and sore. They determine, each of them according to their ability, to send relief to the Christians who live there. I love the fact that in the brokenness of this world, God's people don't need to say, well, look, it's going to be hard enough for me to get through this. It's going to be hard enough for me to make it out of here alive and, and to maybe just enjoy myself a little bit along the ride. Um, so I've got to keep everything that I have to myself. No. God's people have proved it time and time again through the way that they lived, their willingness to give up everything to have Christ known. That even in the face of a famine predicted for the whole known world, that they resolved to be those people who, like Jesus, generously gave what they had. One of the things that we should always be asking ourselves is how can we be more like Christ? How can I love my neighbour more as Christ commanded, my, commanded us? And we can think of so many different ways, inventive ways of being more like Jesus, of loving one another as God has called us to. But giving to others out of what we have received surely is one of the hallmarks, one of the key indicators of the Spirit of God in us. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he's encouraging that church to give to a similar sort of collection. He said, you know what? Remember what Jesus was like. Remember what Jesus has done. He who was rich became poor 
so that we who are poor could become rich. If we have, we should be willing to generously tend for and care for the needs of others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul also reminds those believers this, that there is always enough in Christ. That those who had a lot didn't have too much, that those who had a little didn't have too little. That God is the one who ultimately supplies our need. So if we feel like we have an abundance, it is only an abundance in God's generosity already to us. It's not for us to cling on to and hold on to, but to share as the Spirit directs. And as we share, we shouldn't fear not having, because we know that we have a God who gives and cares for and gave us in the first place. So the challenge is there for us as well, isn't it? We've encountered this already in um, uh, the book of Acts, the generosity of the early church, how these people were willing to give their time, their money, their finances, their energy, even people like Stephen willing to give their lives. I just wonder, how much are we a church of people who are generous, who, who don't just have this word, this word of truth and life in Jesus to share, but also just want to sh share everything that God has given us. When we brought in new members a couple of weeks ago, part of the promises we made to one another were that we would share our times, our talents and our treasures to love one another and to serve the mission of knowing Jesus more and making Jesus more known. Are we a church who is generous? Do we give enough in, in church life so that the church can function beyond that to our missionary partners, to, to charities, to those in need right in front of us? It still makes me so happy that in our church we have the hardship and that when needs arise, we are able to respond generously. And there are folks who are just sacrificially, time after time after time, paying money into that fund so that those in need can be helped. It gladdens my heart that folks in our church have seen right to set up something like Renew, set up something like the Food Bank to try and help alleviate poverty. But we still want to ask the question, don't we? We still want to pray the question, perhaps, Lord, what is it that you have given me that I can give away for your name's sake? What is it that, that I am clinging on to that Christ would have me give away? I think that's a question for each of us to ask ourselves. After all, in verse 29, it says that every disciple, according to his own ability, determined to send relief. This was a personal thing, that the Lord asks us to do it in partnership with him and with a glad, glad heart. What's the last thing that we see again? What is the last thing that we see in this passage that is like um, the hammer coming and striking and just nudging that nail a little bit more into the wood? Well, isn't it this? Chapter 12, verse 1 down to verse 5, the sad story of the second martyr in Scripture that we know of, that James, James the brother, brother of John, one of Jesus's 12 followers, one of the ones who asked to be in that place of, of honour by Jesus's side. And he said, that is not for me to give, but you will be baptised with my baptism. You will drink the cup that I drink. You will die for my name's sake. The sad story that when the world continues to reject Jesus, 
part of that will be rejecting us. I guess one of the lessons for us is not to take it personally. In fact, already in the book of Acts, we've been shown, haven't we, that it was an honour for followers of Christ to suffer for the name. We're not to be a people who invite persecution, to act horribly, to act miserably, to be hard, cantankerous, divisive, horrible people. But it is an encouragement to us to follow him even through suffering. Suffering which leads to eternal life. Jesus invited his disciples to follow him to Jerusalem to the place where he knew that he would be arrested, falsely accused, beaten, tried, sentenced, ultimately murdered. Jesus invites us to follow him, not a promise of escaping the difficulties of this life, but having extra difficulties added in, that people will hate us in the same way that they hate him. In the same way as we've rejected God in our hearts that they would reject us. And that part of squashing down Jesus' name, do you remember Saul's tactic? Was to squash anyone who would speak for, live for, and to represent him. <coughs> but here's the thing with the gospel. Here's the thing with suffering for Christ. Like soil that is willing to be broken up. Like a seed willing to be buried. New life will spring up from those. See, the good news of the gospel for us is that death is not even the worst thing that can be done to us because Jesus has overcome death. Death has lost its sting. Death is even a way for us to follow Jesus into eternal life. Brothers and sisters, do not fear being rejected. Do not fear even hard and hostile coming towards us because if they hated me said Jesus they will hate you also sometimes we should actually be give thanks rejoice for the fact that we have been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus so there we are quite quickly I hope five things that come up from this passage they're just little things that perhaps we've encountered before that the nail has been struck once twice three times but hasn't really got in. Come back to this passage. Look again. Let the Holy Spirit do its work of convicting, of changing, of challenging us, transforming us to be more like Jesus. People who want to speak the goodness of God. People who are experiencing the growth of God. People who with God suffer through rejection and the hardships of life but want to give, want to sacrifice, want to be generous in that. I think as we come week in, week out, and we give ourselves over to listening to what God has to say, we will be changed, even if it's like that nail. Not all at once, but little by little, going deeper in, we will become more like the Saviour who we want to follow. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, that it is relentless, that it does not give up on us, that you are a God who does not give up on us. Too often we are hard-hearted, slow to listen, slow to understand. It's in one ear, it's out the other. 
Lord, I thank you that as your word even goes through us one year to the other, that our minds are affected, that our hearts are shaped, that you are leading us and drawing us to something better. Truly, it is better to be in Christ, to be like Christ. So God, I pray that you would make us, your people here in Amford, more and more into your image, that we would know you more, Jesus, that we would reflect you more, and that part of that would be declaring and shining you to a people who need to know. Be with us, we confidently ask. Work around us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.